Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer Radio Show, brought to you by Calm Bach Feeds. My name is Andy Schneider, but most know me as the Chicken Whisperer, author of The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, national spokesperson for the USDA Biosecurity for Birds program, and editor-in-chief of Chicken Whisperer magazine. Each week, I welcome experts in their field to share their knowledge about different topics, including backyard poultry, show poultry, heritage poultry, gardening, cooking, and, of course, living a self-sufficient lifestyle. Be sure to visit us online at chickenwhisperer.com, where you can follow us on Facebook, become a fan on Twitter, and subscribe to the totally free digital edition of Chicken Whisperer magazine. Once again, I would like to thank all of you for tuning in today to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. At Kalmbach Feeds, our layer pellets and crumbles are all natural, antibiotic-free, with no animal byproducts. Formulated just for laying hens, our feed is fortified with essential amino acids and calcium to ensure maximum production of nutritious, tasty, strong-shelled eggs. From our family to yours, feed your hens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome, goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Find a dealer at KalmbachFeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H, Feeds.com. Or order your layer pellets and crumples today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. Sweet PDZ has been keeping horse stalls ammonia-free and healthy for nearly 33 years. However, ammonia is ammonia, regardless of the species producing it. Therefore, it will do the same great job in your chicken coops and brooders. Sweet PDZ safeguards flock health by neutralizing and eliminating harmful levels of ammonia and odors. Safe and effective moisture absorption. All-natural, non-toxic, premium-grade zeolite mineral. Contains no masking scents or chemical perfumes. Safe and beneficial to dispose with waste on compost and gardens. Learn more at SweetPDZ.com. That's SweetPDZ.com. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Stromberg's family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Stromberg should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. 
Order online today at StrombergsChickens.com. That's StrombergsChickens.com. When you need an incubator, think Brincy, the incubation specialists. Brincy has been a world-leading manufacturer of quality incubators for almost 40 years. They manufacture incubators that hold anywhere from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity controls and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at Brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. How would you like to sleep in on the weekends without having to get up early to let your chickens out or not have to rush home after eating dinner to shut your chickens in for the night? And who's had the unfortunate surprise that a raccoon, possum, or fox got to your chickens because you forgot to close the coop? Well, your days of worrying have come to an end. Introducing the Chicken Guard Automatic Chicken Coop Door Opener. Working off either the timer or light sensor, Chicken Guard automatically opens your coop door in the morning to let the girls out and shuts it at night to keep them safe. Tried and trusted by over 40,000 users worldwide. Buy Chicken Guard online at chickenguardian.com or your local farm and feed store. That's chickenguardian.com. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at IdealPoultry.com. That's IdealPoultry.com. And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. All right, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by our good friends over at Kalmbach Feed. Sorry about uh, the technical difficulty there. I think the Brincy uh, ad played twice because when I went to, um, well, I went to click another ad on the switchboard, and for some reason that ad was stuck to my cursor on the mouse, and it just would follow me around the screen, and I couldn't let go of it. and had to uh, reload the page in, in order for my commercials on the switchboard to uh, reactivate or whatever you want to call it. So, um, but I, we took care of that. So you just heard two Brincy commercials. How about that? Um, <laughs> that was, and then, um, oh, my headset uh, doesn't seem to be working. So we may not have the clarity, uh, at least on my end. Normally the callers who call in are very clear. But they may not have the clarity on my end as we normally do for this broadcast. Uh, um, I'll try to see if I can't fix that here during the, the show. But right now, there's uh, my headset's not doesn't seem to be working. So uh, all these great, uh, wonderful uh, things that are happening. But don't let that discourage you. Get those Chicken Whisper notebooks out. Get ready to take some notes. We've got a great show lined up for you today. Of course, Dr. Pateski, um, and uh, he's going to be talking all about Karaza, 
uh, and infectious bronchitis, uh, coryza being a bacteria, infectious bronchitis uh, being a virus, because uh, we're getting into the season, of course. And um, in fact, there's going to be a great article in the winter issue of Chicken Whisperer magazine uh, written by Dr. Pateski about, um, again, respiratory um, illness in your flock for this coming season. It's wet, it's cold, it's yucky, and and you got migratory birds flying in the different uh, flyways across the country, and and uh, you know spreading the germs. So it's it's going to be um, it's going to be a great article. In fact, we have tons of great articles uh, coming up in the winter issue. I think we have five educational articles, all of them written by poultry professionals. Uh, we're talking poultry nutritionists, poultry scientists, poultry veterinarians, all of them, all five articles. Uh, chicken bloggers need not apply. And then uh, we've got one really good review on a cabinet uh, incubator uh, from Lisa down in Florida who does all of our product reviews. I don't do them because then you would, you know, some people would be like, oh, you're biased. No. So she, she does all of our product reviews down there in, uh, in Florida at uh, Fort Christmas Farm. So we appreciate her. She'll have an article in there. We'll have the word search. We'll have a contest. I'm trying to think what the con- – oh, great con- contest uh, in, the, in the winter issue. Uh, a year supply, and depending on the size of your flock, I want to say it's one bag a month. Uh, so 12 bags total um, of uh, your choice of Kalmbach feeds. And then um, I believe it's two of the uh, poultry blocks uh, shipped right to your door, regardless of where you're at in the lower 48 states. So we've got a great prize for this uh, coming up winter issue. It's going to be fabulous. I just went over to Amazon. And uh, it's, it changes daily almost. Well, maybe not daily, but every couple of weeks it seems to change. And uh, the uh, the book y'all have all been waiting for, <laughs> uh, Chicken Fact or Chicken Poop, uh, The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to the Facts and Fictions You Need to Know to Keep Your Flock Healthy and Happy. Uh, right now it's currently 19.95. You can have it prime, uh, uh, free shipping to your front door. Yeah, right now it shows it'll be released on uh, December 26th. So um, you can still buy that for your loved one or the chicken lover in your life if you choose to, and uh, just uh, print the print the book uh, cover and uh, and then put it in a little envelope or a Christmas card and send it to them and say, hey, this will be shipped uh, hopefully between Christmas and New Year's. But um, right now it says December 26th, maybe before, maybe after. I've seen it anywhere from December 10th all the way to actually January 3rd, I think. I've seen it as a late release. But um, it, it's really, really, and wow, we have a lot of stuff that didn't make it in the book. So that means that there could be actually a volume two of this uh, in the next uh, year or two, um, Chicken Factor, Chicken Poop, volume two. A lot of the nutritional, we just didn't have room. We ran out of room. Uh, we had deadline issues that we were trying to meet. So um, I know a lot of the nutritional questions um, didn't make it in, so we may have to go back and we'll just do a volume two, uh, maybe uh, do this like every other year. We'll have a volume that comes out, <clears throat> chicken fact or chicken poop, because there's no shortage of chicken poop that you find out there on the chicken blogs and chicken forums out there uh, from this, that, and the other, and we try to put as much as that as we can uh, to rest in the book. So um, you can head over to Amazon, and of course, everywhere will carry it like to carry my uh, current book. I uh, saw it today in Tractor Supply when I was there, <coughs> Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and um, other retail book, booksellers. So um, uh, Lowe's, oh my gosh, Lowe's buy so many of my books. They're they're awesome and uh, all over the country. But um, they may be carrying this one as well. If not, I know you can get it through uh, Amazon. So uh, we invite you to do that. 
Wow, I was talking to several people today um, about my future travels coming up in uh, February, March. It is the season. Uh, we always do a big uh, book and speaking tour in the spring, and normally in the fall. This past fall, we did not tour. We made some videos. And I went up to Ohio a couple of weeks ago, and we made a string of videos. Um, not necessarily for the public or the chicken keepers, but these videos are going to be geared towards, I think I shared with you last episode, um, the uh, retail workers. So the folks that work in any store uh, right now that provides the Kalmbach feed around the country, uh, these videos are going to be sent to them so their workers can get up to speed on chicken keeping. I know, uh, and I've heard this for years, over a decade. I have a weak link of those folks that work in the feed stores. You know, they may be an expert on horse or cattle or pigs or goats, but, you know, they may not be know much about chickens. And so it's hard to ask, you know, they may not be able to ask. So we said, hey, you know, we can, we can reach a lot of people with a lot of good information by teaching the source. So this is kind of going to be a video training program on backyard chickens that will get to into the hands of the retail stores. And then their employees, while they're taking a break, eat a sandwich in the back and play this DVD or download this and uh, get, get a little bit more educated on backyard chickens to help their customers and to help, you know, you guys, our listeners. So starting off basic, and of course, those will have different volumes, different seasons, and it'll be more and more advanced for them. So uh, just trying to do what we can to spread the chicken love and get people educated with the right information. Uh, but now they're talking about sending me up to, <laughs> you know, I'm a southern boy, sending me up to Michigan um, and, and primarily doing most of my tour in Michigan. And they hit uh, a couple in Ohio and uh, um, Indiana and um, to a chain of stores. We're not going to announce that yet, to a, but a chain of stores, I believe, up there we'll be doing our speaking engagements uh, from and our workshops. But I'm thinking, in fact, I sent a text to the tour manager, and I said, Michigan in February? <laughs> I said, are you sure? Because <laughs> we've talked about that. And I know this the Southeast, they, they, these retail um, stores, the farm and gardens, they get their chicks literally around the, the, between the 10th and 15th of February. But down in the South, I heard through the grapevine that their stores, their chain of stores up in Michigan starts getting their baby chicks around mid-February. I find that hard to believe. I can, you know, Florida, Georgia, the Southeast, you know, I totally get it. Um, but, but Michigan in uh, mid-February? said, I'll believe it when I see it when I walk into the store on February, you know, 15th and there's baby chicks in there. But maybe so. I mean, it's a hot, it's a hot, uh, hot movement and everybody wants to take advantage of that. And, and uh, so we'll see. But yeah, it looks like Michigan in February. So I'm trying to hold off getting, um, <laughs> trying to hold off getting new tires for the 4x4 until maybe the beginning of February. So I've got fresh rubber on the uh, 4x4 when you head up there for all the uh, snow that I'm sure we'll encounter. And, uh, I guess winter coats are now going to be on the kids' Christmas list. <laughs> but without a doubt, if it happens, they will be thrilled to see tons and tons of snow. Because I always like, whenever we go up to Ohio for an early spring event that we always do, we're going to see snow, we're going to see snow. And uh, we've been fortunate to see snow. Um, and uh, hopefully if you go to Michigan, they'll see a lot of snow. Well, for them, maybe not so much me driving around. And <laughs> so but be on the look at that. We'll post that when we have it, and that's all. that'll be a fun event. I'll have both books with me. Uh, on the book signing for that uh, for the spring, so that's going to be exciting. All righty, um, the show, while you're tuning in, great show today. Uh, like I said, um, poultry veterinarian Dr. Poteski is going to be talking about, teaching us about uh, pariza, uh, bacteria, and infectious bronchitis, which is a virus, because it is tis the season. So uh, without further ado, I'm heading over to the phone lines, and we're going to bring 
Dr. Testion now. Hey, Doc, thanks for joining us today. Great. Thanks for having me, Andy. Congratulations on your book. Great. You're exciting. Thank you. Yeah, the 26th. You're a big part of that, and uh, Dr. McRae and and, uh, um, others that that, that have been participated in the book, which is awesome. Um, For me, it was more of just, uh, you know, organizing everything and and, and moving it along. So uh, it's it really the credit goes to, to all you guys that uh, the experts that end up, you know, uh, addressing some of the statements. So thank you very much. I'm, look, I haven't even seen and, and held it yet. I even, I even have not even got my paper copy of the completed version yet to see or go through. So I'm, I'm on pins and needles waiting to see that, to see if there's any last minute, very minor, minor, minor changes, if any, that need to be, uh, to be done. So Hopefully around Christmas that will uh, be out. Thank you very much for that. Um, so it, it is a season like we talked about, a Coriza and an infectious bronchitis. And there's others, but we thought we'd concentrate on uh, both of these uh, for today. And um, we're, we're ready to hear what you have to say about these, and especially with, and of course, we'll talk about biosecurity and preventing, which is always, you know, the thing to do. But um, talking about this from, hey, you know, because we've covered in the past with, with you, sir, um, things like when is a see, when is a sneeze not just a sneeze? And we've covered a lot of great information. People can go back and listen to the archives um, uh, about illness and what to look for. But in these instances, you know, maybe trying to okay, what, how do I tell the difference? Do I need to tell a difference? And uh, does it matter if I tell a difference? Uh, you know, how do I treat? Is this these automatically a trip to the vet? Um, what's the mortality morbidity rate? You know. Um, what is symptoms that we can see, which may be similar. And I tell this, you know, Tom blue in the face, you know, signs and symptoms for a lot of these different diseases may present the same um, for, for the average backyard chicken keeper. And then so when you get on the blog and say, oh, my chicken had those symptoms and I gave them this and it worked out just fine. And then your chicken doesn't have that, even though the symptoms might be the same. So you're wasting your time on whatever product that would be. And then here's something that you might be interested in. I had somebody contact me um, the other day due to the fact that, um, the water-soluble antibiotics are prescription only now um, at, at, at the beginning of this past year. Um, they are now, and we've she, seen this uh, on, on the chicken blogs and forums, um, and maybe you're two cents worth on this uh, before we get started. They are now getting the other antibiotics that they can injectable and putting it in the water. So they're buying injectable Thailand and putting it in the water and letting their chickens uh, consume it that way. Um, I don't know why they don't inject it, but now they're... So, yeah, so we've seen that uh, a, a few times on the uh, forums anyway, not the chicken bloggers, but the forums where people are, you know, how much Thailand, how much Thailand do I need to put in the, uh... you still there with me? Oh, yep, I can hear you, yeah. Okay, sorry, sorry I thought I got disconnected for a minute. Yeah, um, so, so they're using, I say, Thailand or Thailand, Thailand 50 uh, and just putting it in their water. And they're like, what, what's, the, what's the dose if I put Thailand in the, in the water? So we've seen some of that, mainly because the water side, I guess they don't want to pay the vet visit. I, I don't know. But um, what, what's your just two-minute two take on somebody that's doing that? Oh, I can't buy this water side by antibiotic. So, oh, look, there's Thailand 50 on the shelf. I'll buy that, and I'll put it in the water. Um, what, what's your two cents worth on that before we get <laughs> in with it? And it might be kind of related to our topic today, I guess, at the end of the day, but um, we'll start off with that before I forget because uh, we're seeing that now. Yeah, so that's a really interesting point you made there. I, I, I'm kind of in the bubble of a university, so sometimes I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't learn about those things. But antibiotic resistance is a, is a really big issue. Um, the whole reason we have that veterinary seed directive 
is to really try to mitigate antibiotic resistance. And one thing I really want to point out is that when you give antibiotics orally, um, all the research really suggests that that's when we start having much more significant antimicrobial resistance than if it's given in other routes. So even the same antibiotic, if it's given or orally, it interacts with the gut micro with the gut bacteria in a, in a much more robust way than if you were giving an antibiotic as an injection, for example. Um, so it's really important to be real careful with um, dosages and um, using antimicrobials in the first place. Now, being devil's advocate, so I love being a devil's advocate. So, you know, one thing I point out is that we do have natural antimicrobial resistance. That happens in nature, uh, and that's something we should acknowledge. We also have uh, resistance from bacteria that are exposed to disinfectants, for example. So um, in a poultry processing plant, for example, we use all kinds of disinfectants to clean the birds um, to reduce, not eliminate, the amount of microbes that are on those um, carcasses. Um, but what ends up happening is you have to use very low concentrations of these disinfectants because you don't want to change the quality of the meat. You want to change the way it looks. You don't want to change the way it tastes. Some of these disinfectants can be toxic at certain levels. Um, so what ends up happening is you have very low levels of disinfectants interacting with some bacteria, and you can get some antimicrobial resistance that way also. But we have very strict rules on that. Um, and the, 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 to their credit, the poultry industry and food industry in general you know, follows those rules. It is interesting to me that, that sometimes the people that um, um, at a certain level don't have, you know, it, the, the least amount of knowledge when it comes to the usage of these chemicals, especially antibiotics, when we're thinking about just the broad kind of genre of antimicrobial resistance, those are the ones that are, that are maybe the most cavalier about using these in, in ways that they were not intended to be used. Um, and that's really kind of playing with fire there. So I think we really need to be cautious about what we're doing. Um, you know, there are some really good websites and some really good resources in, in, within those websites and people you can call, including extension veterinarians like myself, um, that can kind of give you recommendations on, on treatments, even some of the treatments that, that antimicrobials might not be effective for. Um, they're not a cure-all, and I think sometimes um, – People in the general public sometimes look at antibiotics and vaccines and think like that, that, that this is going to solve all their problems. And the reality is sometimes it just hides your problems, um, especially antibiotics, where if, if, even if you do treat them and they do get better, well, do they get better because they got better or do they get better because <laughs> you're actually treating whatever the pathogen is and you got a little lucky and it matched up and that, that happens. Um, but even in those scenarios, um, the bacteria then can, can, very often persist in the bird and then um, it can spread that bacteria very surreptitiously to other birds. Um, and this is how we get disease spread. So I, there's, there's, you know, people, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, people are creative and, and I certainly respect that. Um, but I think we need to be real cautious about this, uh, especially, um, you know, birds that are in our backyards and that we interact with and that we touch, um, you know, there's a lot of, of um, potential for disaster there as far as uh, getting exposed to bacteria that do have some resistance, uh, especially when we, you know, kind of have our own little laboratory experiments going on in these birds. So I hope people are cautious when they're, when they're thinking about these things. I know we all want our birds to be happy and healthy. Um, treating poultry is, is a lot different than treating um, our dogs and our cats. 
um, because obviously um, poultry are food animals in this country and dogs and cats are not food animals in this country. And we just need to be real cautious of that. Uh, I think we talked about Cipronel a couple of weeks ago uh, mm-hmm. with respect to um, the active ingredient in a, in a flea medication in dogs and cats and why we don't use that in food animals is because those, those residues can be found in eggs, for example. Um, but obviously we don't consume any of the eggs from dogs and cats. Um, so, so there's reasons why we have to be much more cautious in food animals um, than we have to be in our, in our dogs and cats, for example. And we're also very cautious in our dogs and our cats and obviously in humans too. So um, I, I think it's, you know, a certain level, it's just a, it's an education thing where people just have to learn, you know, what are the long-term issues if we do this over and over and over again, you know, at some point, um, you know, we're going to roll snake eyes and we're going to get exposed to something that we probably didn't want to get exposed to. So we just need to be cautious mm-hmm. of that. Um, Thank that's you a really very interesting, much. Um, yeah, that's really interesting regarding the use of um, antibiotics meant as an injectable, using them in, a, in an oral in an oral fashion. We mm-hmm. don't even really know the efficacy of that, um, especially when it gets put into water. Uh, some of these have to be buffered in certain ways. So um, I'd be curious to know even how well they would work, even if um, you did use them in that manner. Because again, like I was just suggesting. Um, when they are, uh, um, um, when, when these antibiotics are made for to be used in feed or used in water, very often they have to be um, the antibiotic has to be provided in a way that that makes it stable in whatever medium it's going to be in, whether it be feed or water or or whatever it be. So. Uh, the efficacy of those antibiotics, I, w- I would assume, is is probably reduced if you don't use them as they're intended to be used. So just one other thing to be aware of. Um, anyway, Perfect. it's a good subject. We could certainly talk about it another time because I think it's um, there's a lot of value in talking about all the different issues with, with antibiotics um, and, and why it's important that we understand them. So and it, it's, become, it's getting a lot of attention, um, which I think is a really important thing, especially as um, – you know, we get more connected with food production and backyard poultry specifically. So um, talking a little about uh, winter time and respiratory diseases. So kind of just like you and I kind of get a sniffle uh, in the wintertime, um, our chickens are also more likely to get sniffles in the wintertime. It's kind of interesting. It, it is seasonal, even in commercial conventional poultry production. So when you go into some of these uh, poultry farms where there's literally over a million birds on the farm, and those birds are raised indoors in a temperature-controlled environment where they control humidity mm-hmm. and temperature and airflow, uh, we still do see seasonality when it comes to um, some of these respiratory diseases. Um, and, you know, you'd think that you wouldn't see that, but that just shows you, you know, even as much as we can control their environments, um, their outside environment does have a tendency to get inside the barns, and, and that's how disease, you know, gets to our chickens. It comes from the outside. It comes from wildlife. Um, it comes from, um, you know, from, from those type of, 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 of opportunities that are on the outside. And that's where we really kind of focus on this whole issue of biosecurity. And the thing I really wanted to point out is that the, the commercial industry, it, their, their big advantage when it comes to disease control is not so much in that they have, in my opinion, is not so much in that these birds are raised indoors and there's a wall and other barriers separating these poultry from uh, rodents and, wi- and other wildlife that might be control- that might be transmitting disease. 
Their big advantage is that they practice a husbandry practice called all in, all out. So that's just a fancy way of saying they raise the birds together as chicks. And then when they get to, if they're broilers, when they get to about 50 days or so, they all go to the processing plant together. And then that barn is cleaned out. Um, and there's some uh, downtime on that barn of a week or 10 days, whatever it is. Um, and then they replace, um, uh, they compost the litter or they replace the litter. They clean and disinfect everything, and then they start over again. And the advantage of that is that any disease that was in that barn, if there were E. coli or there was uh, viruses or bacteria or protozoal parasites, like coccidia, all those can be controlled and eliminated in that environment by cleaning that poultry house out. And that's a really important point because in backyard poultry, uh, we don't typically do that. And that's, a, that's probably the primary reason, in my opinion, why some of these diseases kind of persist, like mycobacteria, um, some of the salmonellas, um, the mm-hmm. coccidia. They persist because we have birds on our property in our coops pretty much year-round forever, um, for years at a time, without having any downtime, without having real time to clean and disinfect our barns or our coops. So it's a really important thing to kind of consider. And, and what I would tell people is that, you know, I don't know anyone who has backyard poultry, and I'm sure there are a couple of people out there, but I really don't know anyone that, that doesn't have a mixed-age flock. They've got some chicks, they've got some pullets, they've got some older birds. Um, they've got all those types of birds mixed together. And the problem with that is older birds potentially are, are, are typically higher risk because they carry diseases. And when they carry those diseases, they expose them to younger birds, and then those older birds die, and the younger birds then become older, and the cycle kind of goes on and on and on. So it's really important to realize that um, that's probably the biggest husbandry practice that, that backyard birders need to be aware of. And there are ways to mitigate that. And the one thing I'll say before we kind of go off and to the specifics of coryza and infectious bronchitis are that you can try to have, in a perfect world, if, if you have a property where you can move a coop um, from one corner to another corner and have that mm-hmm. other corner that, was, that previously had poultry on it, have that other corner kind of um, lay fallow for weeks or months at a time, there's probably some value in that. And if you can have, even in a perfect world, two coops, uh, one coop that you you rotate between the two, and you can clean and disinfect one coop, um, and then move the birds from the dirty coop to a clean coop. That might be something also to consider. But I guess we all have to think about ways to kind of break the cycle of disease. And um, if we're always going to have these I'm going to offer a suggestion just, uh, that yeah, I was going to offer a suggestion on that. And 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 back in the day. Uh, when we did this, um, that never crossed our mind of why we would do this. But we had two separate areas, and I'll tell you why we did it. Um, <laughs> one really for winter and one for, well, actually probably around November, but between October and November we had an area. Mm-hmm. And was, what we would do is, uh, it was our garden area, where we had our garden. So we, when the garden was over, even the fall garden that we might plant uh, is over and harvested. Uh, we would, and it was a fenced-in area we would move the coop, mm-hmm. or one of our coops, into that area. And the birds would stay in that area, which was our, our spring garden, in that area from, we'll just say, October to November through maybe February. And um, November, December, January, February. So maybe four months. Between four, we'll just say four months, November, December, January, February. 
and they'd get in there and they'd, you know, get all the um, leftover, what we didn't harvest, and they liked that, and scratching around and all that. And then, of course, they would poop all in there, obviously. And then uh, come spring, when it's time to plant the garden, we'd move the coop back over to their other fenced area and move all the chickens back over there. And um, so, and then we would plant, you know, we would till. We'd till normally about at least three weeks, try to till uh, till that garden area three weeks to a month before we plant to get everything turned over uh, and let it sit for a little bit. And then we would go maybe a couple of days to a week before we plant, and we'd till it again uh, and get all that mixed up in there. And I kid you not, Dr. Potesky, we had tomato plants. Uh, I'm not real tall. I'm probably on a good day 5'11", 5'10 to 5'11". My wife's shorter than me. We were on our tippy toes. Uh, trying to reach and pick tomatoes from our tomato bushes, our tomato plants, because it was, it was the most craziest thing we, we have ever seen, and, and we did that ever since. So it's uh, that was the first year. I was like, oh my gosh, last year, you know, and then versus this year, what do we do different? Well, obviously, we had. So at, at that point, it's, it's interesting to see there might be another benefit to that, um, where we were just looking at, hey, this is a great way to <laughs> help fertilize where our garden's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what we did. So just to let our listeners know, unless you see something, uh, an issue that that's maybe a no-no, but, but we did that for, for several years and it, it worked fabulous. We, we got that bent, the gardening benefit out of it, of course. But yeah, we just moved them into the garden area for about four months during the winter and then tilled and planted our garden there and had all that great fertilizer already mixed in, tilled it in good, and then moved them back. I never really considered the disease aspect or maybe the benefit of that, um, doing that. No, that's perfect. That's really clever, actually. And that, that you know, like you said, that's uh, no pun intended. You're, you're kind of killing two birds with one stone in that situation. <laughs> you're getting the benefits to your, to your plants, and you're, uh, you're obviously kind of breaking that, that, uh, that cycle of disease at some level. So that's a, that's a really mm-hmm. uh, clever suggestion. Um, so, so and, and, and kind of on that same point, you know, when you think about coryza, I want to go over infectious bronchitis first, but when you think about the bacteria in coryza, Coryza can't last very long outside of a bird. It's a very, what we call labile. It's, it's kind of a wimpy bacteria. Um, so mm-hmm. what, why all in, all out is so important in controlling diseases like coryza is that um, when, you're poultry, when you don't have poultry in an environment, um, a lot of these diseases will just go away because they can't survive unless there's a host there. And if there's no host, especially coryza, coryza is really interesting because we don't really see coryza in any other birds except for chickens. Um, there, it's been described in pheasants and a couple other uh, game birds, but that's probably not coryza when you look at the um, when you look at the, the genomes of those bacteria. Um, but the point being that if you can kind of try to break that cycle as best as possible, um, you know, a lot of these these bacteria um, will actually just go away. So um, there is value to that, and and um, you know, it doesn't say anywhere that you have to have poultry 24-7, you know, every year. Um, you can break the cycle every once in a while and uh, clean and disinfect and, and prepare your coop for the next flock. Um, you know, there is some value, and I know people are getting more into, into poultry processing. Um, so um, you can take your layers and process those birds with, you know, obviously appropriate training and things like that. And there are um, uh, mobile butchers and um that'll they'll come around and process mm-hmm. birds. So those are all things to consider and there's probably some value in that from a from a disease control perspective. So just something to consider. So when we think about all these diseases, the the one point I wanted to make is that 
you are never going to hear a sneeze or uh, a snicker or a tracheal rail, basically just, you know, some kind of uh, effluent moving back and Mm -hmm. forth. Um, You're never going to hear that and say, oh, that is infectious bronchitis. Oh, that is coryza. There are a lot of different diseases. So anyone that tells you that, oh, it's probably this, um, Uh they're they're guessing. And there's nothing wrong with guessing. But very rarely in poultry um, do we have anything what we call as pathognomonic, basically saying, oh, that's that's what it is. You know, we're dealing with, um, you know, infectious laryngeotracheitis or something like that. It just doesn't happen, unfortunately. And, you know, just to give you a small, a small list of all the different respiratory viruses and bacteria, you have these paramyxoviruses, which Newcastle disease is one of. You have, excuse me, avian metanumavirus. You have infectious laryngeotracheitis virus. You have the mycoplasma bacterium. You have the avibacterium, which are chorizas. You have ornithobacterium. Um, so the point being, and then you have avian influenza and those other, you know, more significant ones, the point being that there's a lot of different bacteria and viruses that cause pretty similar clinical signs. Um, and and that's, that can be very challenging. And that's why we really need to work with diagnostic labs, um, because the diagnostic labs can take a chicken um, and they can isolate bacteria and viruses um, from that chicken, tell us what the problem is, what the infectious agent is, and then we can try to Uh, utilize that information to protect the rest of our flock. In contrast, you can work with your regular veterinarian, and a regular veterinarian can just take a swab. Um, They can literally just take a little sterile Q-tip and get a sample from the the trachea or an oral pharyngeal sample um, just north of the trachea, and they can send that sample to a diagnostic lab for isolation too. Those tests are not as um, good um, to put it simply, as, the, as, as if we took a bird and we necropsy the bird. Um, but, you know, if you don't want to necropsy your bird, um, that's, that's a good thing to consider. And finding a veterinarian that, that can do that is, um, should not be horribly difficult because all they're doing is getting a diagnostic sample and then submitting that to a, uh, a clinical pathology laboratory um, where they can actually um, isolate viruses and bacteria. And it's good to know that. And again, why is it good to know that? So we can protect the rest of our flock. Um, the first thing that we do, and I very people rare, very rarely do this, is when we find a bird that is showing any abnormal clinical signs, um, we need to isolate that bird. So, so what we need to have in a perfect world um, is we need to have a sick pen. Um, because uh, when one bird gets sick, the disease can spread uh, over several days to the rest of your flock, and you want to avoid that as much as possible. So if you can take a bird and put that in a sick pen and call a veterinarian, that's, that's the, the two best things that you can do um, in order to prevent disease spread to the rest of your flock. Um, I've only had one time in all of my years and all the phone calls I've received uh, from backyard enthusiasts where when they call and they start describing these clinical signs, and I'm thinking in the back of my head, yep, this sounds like an infectious disease, only one time as an owner told me that they isolated that bird. So we really want to consider that when we isolate the bird, um, those are the birds that we want to consider for necropsy, which is a fancy version of an autopsy, which is a veterinary version of an autopsy, or um, at the minimum, uh, taking that bird to a veterinarian and having them take a uh, oral pharyngeal swab, basically a tracheal swab, to isolate mm-hmm. bacteria or virus from there. So one thing I wanted to point out is that when you're listening to your chickens, you have to know what normal is. It's really important to know what normal is. So respiratory diseases are, are pretty easy to identify because you'll see, you know, or you'll hear sniffling and snuffling and reverse sneezing 
and even sometimes a cough or two, and, and sometimes what we call a tracheal, um, a tracheal rattle, um, just kind of like a, almost like phlegm kind of going back and forth in the trachea. But you got to pay attention for that. So it's really important to understand what normal is. So hopefully everyone's flocks right now are nice and healthy. So when you go um, into your coop, just pay attention to what the birds look like um, to see what they are to see, excuse me, and to listen to what they're, what they sound like. Um, that's mm-hmm. really, really important because then when you, if you keep on listening for that normal, um, then you can kind of prepare yourself for abnormal. And there's nothing wrong with picking up a bird and just putting your ear next to the, to the, to the bird just to hear what that breathing sounds like. So then again, when you get to abnormal, you know what abnormal is. That's the whole thing, you know, in veterinary school is that we have to really understand normal anatomy and normal health before we can really understand what abnormal is because we wouldn't be able to really understand it if we didn't understand what normal is. And same thing with our, with our backyard birds. So um, mm-hmm. that's really important to, to kind of consider and, to, and to just to be aware of. And it's a great opportunity, especially those of us with, with children, a great opportunity for us to kind of start teaching um, our kids, you know, what are the, uh, the basics of, of caring for your flock. So infectious bronchitis is a virus. Um, it is, um, it's interesting because when normally when we talk about respiratory viruses, we talk about you know, avian influenza or we talk about uh, exotic Newcastle disease, and those are foreign animal diseases. And, and thank God we don't have those in the United States um, because those are uh, things that can cause a lot of uh, significant disease, a lot of economic hardship for farmers and for consumers alike. Infectious bronchitis causes very close when you look at the, the, the economics of the disease globally, it causes a lot of problems, but it doesn't get as much, as much attention because it just doesn't cause as much um, mortality. It doesn't cause as much death, but it does cause a lot of sickness. And that sickness causes a lot of uh, economic repercussions, uh, decreases in egg production, uh, but not as much mortality. So it's really important um, to realize that just because we're not dealing with a virus that causes a lot of disease, um, these viruses can spread, um, and they can spread from backyard to commercial settings, especially those of us that are close to commercial poultry farms, and we just need to be aware of that. So the virus um, can spread uh, from flock to flock by direct or indirect contact, and this is where that biosecurity issue comes in. It's really important for us to be aware of is that that virus can get on our shoes, and it can spread then the next time we go to a feed store, we go to a neighbor's flock, or if we buy some if we sell our chickens on Craigslist or something like that, that can spread that way. Um, but it does cause only moderate morbidity um, and, and very low mortality. So very little death and the morbidity you might not even notice in sometimes. You'll, you'll see that kind of respiratory rails. You'll hear those tracheal rails. Um, but for, if for people that aren't paying attention, it might be something that you kind of skip. Sorry, were you going to say something, Andy? No, no, I'm I'm good. You probably just oh. I'm having to hold the phone up, so you may have heard the phone, the microphone of the phone hit my goatee oh. or my beard. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh no, no, no problem. Um, and so you want to look for in all respiratory diseases, you want to look for um, ocular discharge, kind of some some uh, liquid and kind of goopy material coming out of the eye, um, but also those sounds. It's really important to kind of pay attention to that, um, and it can be. Um, the other thing you want to look for, and this is one of the more interesting things about infectious bronchitis, is that not only do you get a drop in egg production, um, but the eggs themselves very often will have a, um, a leathery feel to them. 
Um, so it's really important, like when you go into, when you watch a commercial poultry vet and they walk into a barn, one of the things they'll always do is they'll just pick up eggs and they'll see what those eggs feel like. And especially if they're hearing kind of that tracheal rail and seeing that ocular discharge, uh, if they feel the eggs are kind of leathery, then that starts pointing you in that direction of, oh, we might be dealing with an infectious bronchitis uh, kind of outbreak. Hmm. Um, just as a side note, infectious bronchitis is, is kind of interesting because in the commercial world, um, there are a lot of vaccines or the, there are vaccines for infectious bronchitis, but the virus is very clever. Uh, nature is you know, usually smarter than we are. And the virus can uh, mutate, and there is a constant battle trying to keep up with uh, the different uh, wild type or natural viruses of infectious bronchitis that are in the environment versus the vaccine strains that might be in the environment. And the vaccine strain can actually cause some disease. So when we do get outbreaks of infectious bronchitis, one of the things we have to do is we have to figure out, are we dealing with a vaccine strain that, 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 that for whatever reason has caused disease, or are we dealing with a natural wild type, is what we refer to it, uh, version of the virus um, that is causing the disease. So it is kind of an interesting thing. In, in the backyard world, we don't vaccinate for infectious bronchitis. It does happen. We do see it in backyard flocks, um, and that's where, you know, we have to be really cautious about spreading it um, because, um, you know, it came from somewhere. It either came from a fomite, it came from some other poultry, um, but we have to be aware of uh, how to prevent it. And, and in the backyard world, we don't really have vaccine as, a, as an option for the most part. The vaccines are live. They have to be uh, added to drinking water. They have to be given at, at certain specific times. So it's not really practical for backyarders to use it. But it's certainly practical for backyarders to know that infectious bronchitis is very common um, and that it causes these respiratory signs, not very high mortality, so we don't see a lot of death, but we will see a drop in egg production. And that's why, among other things, it's really important that we keep track of how many eggs our birds are laying. Um, so when I talk to an owner and I say, well, you're describing a respiratory disease, have you seen a drop in egg production? And you kind of get this silence on the phone a lot of the time. And it's just because people are busy, obviously, but they don't always keep track of some of the things that will be helpful when we see abnormal. So they might hear those those tracheal rails, um, but we really want to understand all the, the things that are going on with those poultry in order to um, mitigate, or in order to, to, to try to come to some initial diagnosis um, before we um, do, um, before we make further decisions about, you know, should we submit some of these birds for necropsy, for example. So that's, especially with the time, I wanted to go over um, coryza next. Uh, coryza is a bacteria, um, so infectious bronchitis was a virus. Um, and coryza, like I said before, is is um, is really interesting because the, the the like I said, the pathogen, the bacteria, doesn't remain viable outside of the bird uh, for more than 24 hours. So it's really easy to get rid of um, if, if you can do things correctly, but it can be challenging in some of these rolling or in some of these mixed-age flocks. So we just need to be um, aware of that. The organism, especially the bacteria, is really sensitive to desiccation. So desiccation is just, just dryness. So um, in the wintertime, you can see why coryza can also be a little more challenging to deal with because we have a lot of moisture out there. Um, and it can survive a little longer in that type of environment versus a, a dry summer environment. Um, so those are another reason why we see a little more coryza 
in the winter um, than in the summer. So coryza is a bacteria, and we actually see um, depressed egg production in coryza also. Um, so it's something to really be aware of is that, again, if you see a loss of egg production, don't just say, oh, that's got to be coryza. Well, it could be infectious bronchitis. And when I said about that leathery egg, well, sure, that's the classical uh, clinical sign that you'll see in an egg from infectious bronchitis. But as they tell us in veterinary school, sometimes the virus does not read the book. Uh, sometimes the bacteria doesn't read the book, which is just a fancy way of saying, you know, not all the clinical signs that you see are always going to show up. So it, it, if it was that easy, then we'd have um, you know, all these kind of machine learning uh, type algorithms that would be uh, that would be our doctors at this point. It's just usually not that easy yet. And um, there are these subtleties that sometimes the virus, uh, for whatever reason, doesn't cause some of the clinical signs that we are expecting it to cause, or the bacteria doesn't cause all the clinical signs that we're expecting it to cause. Uh, coryza is, um, like I said, the bacteria. Um, the fancy name for it is Avibacterium paragallinarium. Um, so you don't have to say that. <laughs> Most of us just say coryza, um, but just something to yeah. be aware of. Um, and then to kind of further kind of give you a little more background, it used to be called Haemophilus paragallinarium, um, but they changed it to Avibacterium probably in the last couple of decades. And, and this is where all the microbiologists love to argue and they like to look at all the genetic sequences and, and try to um, make some sense of, of how these bacteria should be organized. So um, certainly something to be aware of, but uh, nothing really um, too important there. Um, coryza, you get a little more mortality than infectious bronchitis. You can get mortality up to about 20%. Um, um, excuse me, yeah, you can get uh, morbidity. So sickness can actually be up to only about 20%. Usually the entire flock is not affected, but it can happen over time um, as those bacteria kind of persist. Mortality is really low again. So this is why we don't talk too much when we're giving, um, you know, when we're talking about disease um, to backyarders. We talk about avian influenza and we talk about salmonella because these are ones that either affect us or they have high mortality rates. But we don't talk about some of the more common ones like infectious bronchitis and coryza, which can be devastating in a different way um, because they're kind of a little below the radar typically because they cause a lot more uh, sickness and a lot less mortality. Um, but certainly something to be aware of. Um, and you'll see some of the same clinical signs. So you'll see that drop in, in egg production. Um, you'll see some of the same respiratory signs that we um, were mentioning with infectious bronchitis. Um, you'll see um, it will happen in, in, in layers and broilers, just like infectious bronchitis. Um, you'll see some ocular discharge, and you'll also see um, kind of this chronic sinusitis. So uh, the sinuses behind the, the eyes and the birds, those will be inflamed and reddened. Um, and again, this is where it's really important to understand normal and abnormal. So pick up your birds, feel your birds, see what they feel like when they're normal, see what they listen, or not see, listen to them when they're normal. Um, so then when something abnormal happens, you'll be like, you know what? I'm seeing not only discharge, but they, their head just looks more enlarged and kind of puffy. Um, those are typical common signs related with respiratory disease. The quicker you can identify that, the quicker you can, um, you know, kind of uh, communicate with an extension veterinarian or your, your regular veterinarian uh, or a, a pathology lab and, and kind of um, proceed from there. Now, coryza can be a little challenging. So there are ways to treat coryza, um, but this is where things get challenging again. Um, even when you treat coryza um, with um, some of the antibiotics, oxytetracycline, erythromycin, uh, whatever it be, 
um, it can persist in the bird. Um, and then if you have other birds that you're introducing, uh, those birds then could be potentially susceptible to coryza. So this is where that all-in, all-out thing gets really challenging because if you, if you treated your flock for coryza and they got better, well, now you get some new birds. So now you have to kind of assume that those new birds eventually are going to be exposed to the same bacteria. And that's a challenge because now that bacteria can kind of persists in that environment. So one of the things that, that, that I always suggest to people is, first of all, you need to isolate the organism. Uh, and the reason you need to isolate the organism is because you need to make sure that the antibiotic that you're using is um, the right antibiotic for the bacteria. Not all bacteria are, and not all coryza are created equal. So you need to make sure that if you are going to use oxytetracycline, that that oxytetracycline is appropriate to be used um, and is effective, or else you're kind of wasting time and money um, and then running into some of the issues that we talked about earlier um, uh, um, um, with spe specific antimicrobial resistance, for example. Because um, remember, those, those antibiotics are also interacting with other bacteria in the bird's gut, and those other bacteria, uh, while coryza doesn't make you and I sick, um, those other bacteria can make us sick. Some of the E. coli's, uh, the salmonellas, the campylobacters, the enterococci, uh, those can make us sick. So it's really important for us to be aware that when we do treat with antibiotics, uh, we have to think about all the other repercussions that we're, that we're utilizing or that we're, con that we're interacting with all the other bacteria that we're potentially interacting with. Um, so there are vaccines for coryza, um, but again, the, you know, I, this is not a vaccine that we typically would use in a backyard environment, um, but it is important to be aware that those things do exist. The vaccines just aren't set up to really typically um, be appropriately utilized, and most small animal veterinarians don't really have the skill set or just haven't had the training, it's probably a better way of saying it, to administer these vaccines. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but they can be, but it's important to realize that they do exist, especially for some of the listeners that are, you know, potentially have uh, free range and pasture poultry farms that are a little larger, might have hundreds, even thousands of birds. Uh, certainly uh, um, important to consider um, that those vaccines do exist and that there are veterinarians that can um, help with the application of those veterinarians. This vaccine, the nice thing about the Coryza vaccine, uh, or at least the one that I'm most familiar with, an in, activated vaccine, um, that, just, that just is a fancy way of saying that, that it is a bacteria, but the bacteria is killed. Um, so there are advantages to inactivated vaccines um, in that you don't have any potential for any disease, for example. The only disadvantage of inactivated vaccines in general is that these inactivated vaccines will cause a dip in production. So um, because the vaccine is injected, for example, um, or just because of the nature of the vaccine, it does cause the birds um, to kind of take a hit. They, they will not be as productive. They won't drink as much for the next 24 hours. Um, and that for producers is a big deal because if you're not drinking as much, then you're not eating as much. If you're not eating as much, um, then, then you know, it takes a little longer for those birds to, to recover and become productive again. Um, so those are the, the main kind of things I wanted to talk about with respect to to those diseases, I wanted to kind of go back to the prevention issue, though, because I think it's so important to really focus on that for our backyard kind of owners. Um, but I really wanted to stress it's important to know a little about different types of respiratory diseases again. And, and we're just kind of scratching the surface on these right now. Um, but the more you right. know, um, the more information you have, and the more you start understanding some of the subtleties between them as you get more and more experienced. 
and there's a lot of value in that. Um, and then when you get a – one of the problems is sometimes you'll work with veterinarians and, and pathologists, you know, get a pathology report, and, you know, it, this is – you need to be able to look at those reports and not just 100% rely on the veterinarian. You need to be able to ask good, informed questions, just like with your own health. Um, you don't want to rely 100% on your doctor. You want to be able to obviously have confidence in your doctor, but you want to be able to ask them questions, and, and, and you need some knowledge to be able to ask them well-informed questions. So it's important to understand some of these diseases and, you know, the questions of should I depopulate, do I not have to depopulate, should I treat, should I let it run its cycle, which is a very appropriate, reasonable approach to disease in poultry, um, are, are things that you need to consider. Is it zoonotic? So if I sell these at the, if I sell eggs, for example, at the farmer's market, or I give eggs to my neighbors, is that going to cause my neighbors to get sick? Well, infectious bronchitis and coryza are uh, epizoonotic. They, are, they don't cause disease in humans. So um, certainly a completely appropriate to, to, to sell those eggs, for example. Just being aware of, of preventing um, transmission of disease is the only thing that you really want to focus on. And you can break that cycle by uh, washing eggs and also by um, not reusing egg cartons, for example. So um, there are ways, you know, where this knowledge I think is really useful to understand. And, and the last thing you want to do is have to kind of bone up on coryza, bone up on infectious bronchitis right after um, you were, uh, you, you, you found out that you have this disease. That's, it's always hard to respond to those things while you're, while you're in the middle of, of, of dealing with an outbreak, for example. Okay. So Interesting. the last thing I wanted to talk about is just the, um, you know, kind of just common ways to prevent disease. Um, mm -hmm. And some of these are easier done, easier said than done, but it's certainly something to be aware of. And, and we all do the best can. I'm, I'm a big proponent of don't make perfect the enemy of good. So I think some of us get, you know, we, we kind of see some of these things written down about biosecurity and we go, oh, God, we're never going to be able to do uh, A, B, <laughs> and C. But, you know, especially as a parent now, you know, one of the things I always kind of start realizing is, well, if I can't do A and C, but I can do 50% of B, that's pretty good. There's, that's a good start. So don't, don't uh, you know, I, I, I really am a proponent of don't make perfect the enemy of good. Good is better than bad. Not perfect, but, you know, nobody's perfect, as, as, as we all know. Um, so big things house birds away from open water sources. The open water sources, um, that's where wild animals go to get water, um, whether they're waterfowl or not waterfowl. Rodents go there. Other wildlife go there. Um, so the closer our birds are to wildlife, whether it's predatory wildlife or non-predatory wildlife, uh, the closer they are to disease. Um, so it's really important for us to, as much as possible, discourage uh, interaction between wildlife and our, and our poultry. It's obviously not always 100% possible. I mean, if we have a pond that's on someone else's property or that pond is on our property, but, but for whatever reason it needs to be there, it's a source of water, whatever it be, um, you know, then that's one of those things you just can't do. But um, we can kind of select where we're going to put our coops and we can make sure that um, we want to make sure our coops are as far away from those open water sources as possible, even if it's another 20, 30, 40 feet, even if there's a, another barrier there, it's important to think about. Um, the other kind of thing that we want to consider is, is access to arborage. So trees and bushes, um, those are um, really important because um, uh, roof rats and all types of avian wildlife are going to obviously, squirrels and, other, and whatnot, are going to use 
um, those trees and those bushes as habitat. And it's really important for us to kind of be aware of that. And I live in Davis, and Davis in the summer is really hot, so the shade from trees is really important. So all, most of our backyard poultry owners um, in California, especially this part of California, have some kind of shade for their birds, which I think is essential uh, in the summer. But um, you want to make sure that that shade uh, does not create um, significant habitat for wildlife that then could expose our poultry to disease. So what I mean by, so how do we balance those out? Well, roof rats, for example, can jump anywhere from about one to three feet. So uh, if roof rats are, are, are hanging out in trees, which they do, um, I don't want them, I, I, I want our trees pruned in such a way that we have more than three feet of space between the tree, um, the tree branches and our coop. So sometimes I'll see these, these branches that go uh, onto the top of the coop, and that is a perfect kind of highway, uh, if you will, for, for rodents, for example, to get from the tree um, into the coop where there's, ice, uh, where there's usually some cool water and some, and some yummy feed. So another thing to be really cautious of. Um, other things, and, and these are just the basics that we've gone over and over and over again, but I think it's really important to point out again is to have designated clothing. So <clears throat> excuse me, whether you have a special pair of shoes that you always wear when you're out with your coop, um, that is really, really important to always keep out in your coop and not in the feed store, not in your car, not in your house, not in your neighbor's coop, um, but just in your coop. Um, I think some of us um, will rely a little on foot baths, and I'm kind of agnostic on foot baths. Um, the problem with foot baths is they have to be maintained and um, if you have a busy lifestyle, like I'm sure we all do, sometimes, you know, changing your foot bath out every single 24 hours is not probably at the top of everyone's list. So in lieu of that, um, and, and in addition to, foot baths are great if you can maintain them, but um, having a pair of dedicated shoes that you always keep near your coop, <coughs> excuse me, is, is, is probably where you're going to get more bang for your buck. Same thing with overalls. So have a pair of overalls, again, that you keep out near your coop. You don't take that to the feed store. You don't take that um, inside your house uh, you know, from, for, for food safety reasons. You don't take that to uh, your neighbor's coop. Um, you want to prevent any type of transmission of disease, and, and those are, are really good things to, to kind of focus on. Uh, just as an example, in, in the poultry industry, when I go to some of these breeder farms, they will literally make you take all your clothes off, you take a shower, and then they'll give you clothing to put on, and then you'll walk inside um, that only then can you actually walk inside the farm, let alone the barn, where you have to go through other layers of protection. Um, so the least we can do, I think, as backyarders is, is, is try to have some kind of dedicated shoes and overalls to kind of try to break that cycle mm -hmm. of disease. We're out and about all day long. When we see our birds, we want to make sure that all the things that we dragged in from the outside are not uh, exposed to our birds. Um, and then the, the last thing, thing I wanted to mention Oh, sorry, Andy. No, please finish up. That's fine. Yep, I'll comment at the so, end. So the last thing I wanted to mention is, is so we talked about these mixed-age flocks, um, which is just so common in backyards. Everyone has them, um, and that's, that's not ideal, but that's just part of the backyard poultry experience, and, and I'm not opposed to that. Um, but when we do bring in new birds to our flock, we need to quarantine them. Uh, and what I mean by that is we need to have those birds in a separate area for at least two weeks just to keep an eye on those birds because the worst thing that happens, and I've seen this happen a lot, 
is that someone will get some birds from whatever website. Um, the birds, you know, seem to be healthy or are described as healthy. They bring them home. They put them in their coop. Everything's fine. And then a couple days later, everyone starts sneezing, uh, coughing, et cetera. Um, so the question is always like, well, did the new birds bring the disease? Well, you know, kind of anecdotally, it seems like they did. But the way to prevent that or one way to mitigate that is that if you decide to get birds from some of these, you know, I would say, I wouldn't say not reputable, but just places we don't know. We're kind of rolling the dice on if those birds are carriers of disease or not. If you decide to do that, which I don't always condone, I don't. I, I think there are better options. But if you do that, quarantine your birds. So when you get those birds, put them in a separate pen for literally 10 to 14 days. Keep an eye on them. If after 14 days they're not showing any clinical signs of disease, well, that's a pretty good sign that they're probably not being that they're not active carriers of any disease. But if you just take your birds off of Craigslist and you put them in your backyard, you're really rolling the dice. And eventually, um, you know, you're going to get snake eyes on that. So you need to be real cautious of that. In a perfect world, we'd all work with our, our hatcheries and our feed stores and our hatcheries and our feed stores would only get chicks from uh, MPIP approved national poultry improvement plan approved uh, hatcheries um, because those ones we know go through a certain level of rigor uh, to prevent disease transmission to those birds. That's, that's not perfect either, but it's, it's certainly the best option of all. So working with those type of MPIP-approved uh, hatcheries and feed stores that only work with MPIP-approved hatcheries is really, really, really important. Absolutely. Um, and and I, I do the same thing, and I'll give you an example. As far as when I tour and I hand out um, lots of information from uh, USDA APHIS on biosecurity, and, <laughs> and I explain to them, I'm like, look, you know, you'll have some people in the group that'll be like, I love my bird so much, I'm going to do everything on this list. And they'll do everything mm -hmm. on that list for about a week, and then they just seem like to do nothing. <laughs> and, and then, you know, and then over time. And then you'll have folks that will just say, oh, my gosh, I can't do any of this. But, but I, I also will go over the things. And I'm like, look, you know, I think, and, 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 and USDA knows I share this with them as well. I'm like, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, realistically, it's unreasonable to ask a urban soccer mom to stop by the car wash every time she leaves the feed store to wash her <laughs> wheels and, and, and uh, tire, tires and wheel wells. And, you know, it's not going to happen, let's face it, at the end of the day. But they can use hand sanitizer before and after they handle the birds. That, that one pair of boots, you know, how, you know, are you only keep in their backyard. Maybe the coveralls as well. Don't share tools with a chicken neighbor or, or a neighbor. And um, so, so we go through the things that are cheap, uh, are very affordable, and, and just like you said, you know, we, we'd rather do, if we can do two out of the five things, then, hey, that's a great start, and that's better than zero out of the five things. And let's keep it real, let's keep it realistic, let's keep it affordable, because you might, <laughs> at the end of the day, do those, might do those. It's still a struggle, but uh, we hope that you would uh, do those if you can't, you know, obviously do them all. So uh, I 100% uh, agree with that and share that. Uh, with all the folks that, that do our workshop, just trying to keep it realistic, um, and that's uh, and that's awesome. I've got one question, kind of related, I guess, um, and it's the only one that I had seen that was posted, and, and this is actually coming from me because I see it posted occasionally. And a lot of people, the answer would be 100% not always, but you still have a lot of folks, um, whether they were raised on a farm, grandparents raised, it's just something that's done. Um, and, and some people probably never think about doing this, just, I guess, depending on where you're raised and how you were raised. But um, I guess at the end of the day, um, and, and I'm just going to say maybe the answer is, and, and you'll correct me, 
maybe the answer is to never do this, but you know, if you, if you have a bird in your flock that has some signs of, of illness, we have no idea what that illness would be. Um, is the safe answer to be just 100% without a doubt, no matter what it is, uh, don't eat that bird. Because some people, their, their, their method of, of health um, benefit, I guess they don't move. For some people out there, their method of uh, health care is an ax. Um, whatever, you know, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going gonna, I'm not gonna to let this spread. This is it. I mean, yes, they're chickens, but, you know, hey, my, my method of, of health care treatment is, is an ax. I'm going to eat this bird. It's going to feed my family. Um, and so, and we see this on occasion and some people are like, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, you're sick. Um, so is, is the politically correct answer to, if you have a bird that, that shows any type of illness, regardless of what that illness may, to just, we're not going to feed that to our family or is, uh, are there things that would, um, warrant not, not eating that? Is that just kind of a safe answer? Um, because I know, uh, and I see it, a lot of people will be, you know, their, their method is, is an act for their, their medical care for their birds. And uh, they're going to feed their, their family with that. So is that politically correct answer? A no, no. I mean, we're pretty open on the show with things like that. Uh, yeah, I do as I say, not as I do. But yeah, the politically correct answer: don't eat it. But at the same time, there may be only one or two diseases we might have to worry about if we, you know, process it properly, cook it properly, uh, 165 degrees, that, you know, that type of thing. What's your thought on that? I think it's a very uh, valid point. No, that's that. You probably do a whole show on that. So, so I have. A couple different opinions. So when I do international work, um, especially in the developing world, um, and this topic comes up, this topic doesn't come up. People eat whatever. Um, and right, right, and right. I see that argument from, from a disease perspective. As long as those birds are processed correctly, there should be no viable salmonella, any kind of zoonotic kind of issue should, should be resolved. As mm-hmm. long as you cook the meat mm-hmm. to 165 degrees uh, Fahrenheit or Celsius, excuse me, um, as long as you do that, um, then there shouldn't be there shouldn't be an issue there at all. Um, and I'm, you know, and, and, and it's interesting when I you know do work internationally, especially in you know, some parts of the developing world, that that is not an issue at all. People eat everything. I mean, in the United States, we eat right. maybe sixty percent of of the carcass, and, and the rest of it goes to either a landfill or it goes to rendering, whatever it be. Um, the rest of the world just doesn't do that for better or for worse. Now, I would say especially with the flooding and the fires that have happened um, from hurricanes and, and fires out West. If our birds got sick now um, and we were close to those areas, now we might be dealing with things like heavy metals. We might be dealing with some of the chemicals that are in batteries and computers. Um, now mm-hmm. in that situation, that's when I use an abundance of caution. Um, so for example, we're about to put out an extension document in kind of, uh, some of the parts of, of California that were ravaged by fire, uh, suggesting that people in certain areas, just in an abundance of caution, shouldn't even consume eggs, uh, from their hens anymore. Um, so in that situation, flooding, for example, is another one. When you have flooding, it's not just water. Water is pretty harmless for the most part, but you have now water that might have a bunch of chemicals that are floating around in it. And maybe a birds are great at picking up stuff off the ground. And some of those things can end up in our eggs. Um, so in that situation, sometimes the birds get sick, sometimes they don't. But in that situation, then that's an abundance of caution because we're dealing with heavy metals and, and things like that. And, and we might not even see some clinical signs like lead, for example, we just don't really typically see birds get sick from lead 
toxicity, even though we know that there's lead in the environment in some areas of the country. Um, so unless it's something unique like that, that, that would be the only time I'd really use an abundance of caution. In the other scenarios, I, I, I'm not very cavalier typically, but when it comes to food safety, if you cook the meat right and the birds are sick, I, 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 I would never eat a sick animal. Um, but mm-hmm. um, in some parts of the world, that is a, a reality, and, and I, I think mm-hmm. it's not always the worst thing. I think the politically correct thing to say is don't eat a sick animal, and I agree with that. Um, Mm -hmm. but I also agree, like, let's say you have a flock of a hundred birds or 50 birds or 20 birds or five birds, one of them gets sick and the other ones are fine. Well, in that situation, I, I, would be very comfortable in in eating those other four birds. I wouldn't eat that fifth bird. Right, right, right. Gotcha. Okay. I don't know. It's a a complicated topic. Yeah. Well, I may have a whole show on that. It gives me another topic idea for, for uh, later this year after, uh, Good maybe kind of a few weeks after they get their chicks, is that, that when people maybe start processing. Um, you didn't elaborate and may not be able to since it's not released yet. You talked about with the wildfires, and, and I was trying to brainstorm here um, what, you know, I guess the criteria there to, um, you say, you said something about, was it put down their flock or don't eat their flock? I, I forget what it was, but do the wildfires, and I'm trying to think, the scenario here, just uh, the fires weren't anywhere near me or we were affected or the ground where we were affected uh, burned and now we're back at our house. The house was saved, the ground was scorched, and now I've got to put the chickens back in that area. What, what, um, with the fire, I'm trying to put two and two together with, um, with the risk there, the, the possible outcome with the fire. Yeah, so, so we're worried about in, in, in urban areas, especially. Um, we're worried about when, when houses burn down, we're worried about all the chemicals, um, whether gotcha. they be from batteries or computers or stucco. All that stuff um, is not normal stuff that, that burns down in a forest fire. Um, and, and unfortunately, we just know very little about if any of those things can get into eggs, for example. Um, what are the levels that, that you know, they're exposed to? What are withdrawal periods? We just don't know very much about those things. This, this scenario so not necessarily, happen. not necessarily inhalation of the smoke. The consumption. Um, okay, consumption, consumption of, of when they're scratching the when they're scratching the ground and consuming whatever they Correct. think that might be good to eat. Okay, got it. Got Correct. It. I was just trying to go through all of it. And yeah, if you no, if good, you can like um, send that to me uh, or when that publication is out, that that's I'd, I'd love to share that obviously, but just review it for my general. Uh, knowledge yeah, and education no, too. It. I think yeah, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Like that, so. yeah. I'll send that to you. All righty. Hey, man. Great show. Uh, very timely topic. Good topic. I think most backyarders have probably heard of Horizon Infectious Bronchitis. So it's a great review for everybody. If you tuned in late or, um, or partially through, hey, you can go back. This will be archived probably within five minutes of us ending the show. You can go back and listen to it to its entirety. And I invite you to go back and listen to some other shows that Doc's done with us, like When Is a Sneeze? Not just a sneeze and other other you know every time he's on we normally cover some type of uh, disease or illness uh, biosecurity things like that and he comes on the second Thursday of every single month and also he writes for the magazine so look for his articles in the, the magazine when it comes out uh, in December Chickens for Magazine um, Dr. Pateski thank you very much for joining us today and um, we look forward to having you back uh, the second week in December we look forward to that and thank you so much for all your uh, knowledge and sharing that with us great thanks for having me again Andy. appreciate it hey thank you you take care
Cackle Hatchery is a third-generation, family-owned and operated hatchery. They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website, CackleHatchery.com, for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at GQFRadio.com. That's GQFRadio.com. Want to protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster? Nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and large fowl hens. They also come in several different styles and colors. Give your hens the protection they deserve by purchasing Hen Saver Hen Aprons today. 100% of all proceeds goes to provide care to rescued animals at Crazy K Farm in Hempstead, Texas. Purchase your Hen Saver Hen Aprons at hensaver.com. That's hensaver.com. Do you provide a heat source for your backyard chickens in the winter? In most cases, it's not necessary. But if you choose to provide a heat source for your backyard chickens, it's imperative to use a safe and effective heat source, and the only one I recommend is the Sweeter Heater. The Sweeter Heater is a safe, completely sealed, washable, non-breakable, energy-efficient, long-lasting and reliable specific area heater that comes with a three-year warranty. Ditch the dangerous heat lamp this season and invest in the only heater I recommend, the Sweeter Heater. Purchase the Sweeter Heater online at SweeterHeater.com. That's SweeterHeater.com. Come back. Come back. Come back. Come back. Come back. From our family to yours, feed your chickens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Visit our website at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H-Feeds.com. Or order today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. All right, guys, I appreciate you tuning in today. Uh, you just heard the commercial for the sweeter heater, and uh, I'm telling you, already this year I've posted a number of coop fires caused by those dangerous heat lamps. Uh, I know there's some of you out there, I've used a heat lamp for 40 years, and I've never had a problem. Well, uh, mark yourself just lucky. Um, they um, just, just can't. I, they're used because they're 10 bucks. We get that. And um, We've covered this till I'm blue in the face. We've covered it in the magazine. We've covered it in the book. We've covered it on the podcast a million times. 
And um, I'm going to be very um, uh, crazy about posting every fire I can I can find in the news media um, about the the fires. And people will be aggravated, and they'll be on my page. All oh, you ever post about is fires. Well, until people learn. Um, you know, and, and you can blame the lamp, you can not blame the lamp. Well, it's not the lamp's fault, it's people don't secure it. So, yeah, it's, it's, don't buy the lamp if, you don't, if you're not going to secure it. So, um, but you, that's fine, you can follow us on Facebook and you'll see the numerous fires I'm going to post all season. It's already started and they'll be continuing all the way until spring and even through spring because people use the heat lamps for their chick brooders when they go out and buy chicks and they'll leave and go to run the store. They'll come back and their house will be gone because they were brooding six baby chicks with a $10 heat lamp. So um, what's your homeowner's deductible? Figure out what your homeowner's deductible is if you if it burns to the ground. And then now you can figure out about, you know, hey, it's going to be cheaper for me to buy this $100 sweeter heater or this $100 EcoGlow um, um, for, for my uh, brooder or, or the sweeter heater for my coop than paying that $1,500 or $2,000 homeowner's deductible when my house burns down. So um, research it. And um, if you've been, oh, I've been using this 40 years and I've never had a problem, uh, you know what? Tomorrow's another day. Next year's another year. And, um, you know, so just keep that in the back of your head. Uh, if you're sleeping at night, <laughs> hope you sleep good. And uh, you keep in one eye open to look out at the coop, make sure it's not in flames. So um, just keep keep that in mind. So, uh, hey, going to wrap it up. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll be back next Thursday with more uh, Spreading the Chicken Love with our good friend, poultry scientist, Dr. Bridget. McCray. So, uh, hey, go out there and spend some time with your spend some time with your chickens. God bless everybody.